and welcome to That Friday Feeling Podcast with me, Helen Bartram, and special guest, Holly Matthews. In this podcast, me and Holly are going to explore resilience. So I view resilience as a slinky. Um, You know them toys that you put down the stairs? Um, Bit weird, right? But actually, bear with me and I'll make a little bit of sense, hopefully. Um... So resilience is our ability to deal with a crisis and I guess, I know people use this term a lot, but actually bounce back to some level of balance, some level of equilibrium, some level of normal um, after a crisis and how quick we can recover. That's where our resilience comes in. Now, when I view a slinky and it being stretched out and returning back to how it originally was that's how I view humans and their resilience so when we're under a crisis or a tough time our slinky is stretched out sometimes it's stretched right out to the max um and you think that it probably can't go any further but naturally it does comfortably come back however sometimes what we experience shapes us for life and when our slinky gets a bit of a kink in it, that for me is when we go through some real tough stuff that really changes our outlook on life or just changes what our future is going to look like. So the slinky then has a kink in it, but you know what? It still comes back. So for me, at the times when I feel like my slinky's really stretched out, the time I feel I'm going through some tough stuff, just knowing and trusting that my slinky is going to return back to centre, to normal as such, is comforting in itself. And hopefully that makes some sense to you. And actually, when you're going through tough stuff and you feel like your slinky's stretched out. I mean, if you remember slinkies as a kid, even when they were stretched out, they still had that little bit more stretch in them. Um, so even when we feel like we're in the tough stuff and we're dealing with some real shit we can probably be stretched a little bit further if we had to, if that makes sense. But actually knowing and trusting that eventually, over time, we're going to come back, we're going to be centred again, we're going to spring back into some level of equilibrium, being centred, normal, if that's even applicable in life right now. Um, But yeah, Before I introduce Holly, I think it's really important that I mention that this episode might be a bit of a trigger for you. So we talk quite in depth about the loss of Holly's husband at a young age. And I think that if you are grieving or finding grief or anything extremely difficult right now emotionally, it might not be the right time for you to listen to this podcast. You have a responsibility to keep yourself safe and... This podcast is always going to be here for you to come back to when you feel in a different frame of mind if you think that's the best thing for you right now. Holly is a former TV actress, a TEDx speaker, a life coach, an NLP practitioner and the founder of the Happy Me Project. And I really wouldn't be doing her justice if I didn't mention the amazing work that she does with charities close to her heart like the Brain Tumor Charity, Grief Encounter and the Carers Trust. Let's welcome Holly and learn more about resilience. 
thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to speak to you. And actually, what led me to inviting you to come speak on my podcast was um, I was thinking about something that we often overlook as humans and something that helps guide us through life that um, we probably forget we have, but it helps us bounce back when we have challenging times. So you might be wondering what I'm thinking about, talking about even. I'm talking about resilience. And when I think about resilience and it led me to you and how much I view you as a really resilient human being. And I was hoping that you would share how resilience has helped you over the years. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. Um, I definitely do. I do see myself as a resilient person. And I think that resilience has come over, it's come over time and it's kind of come in waves. And I feel like the things that I've experienced in my life at each stage, the lessons that I've had prior to that have taught me how to deal with that. So for your listeners, I grew up as an actress on TV and I started acting when I was just 11. And I actually think that first experience of having a platform when nobody had a platform, so having a platform when there was no social media, thank God, to be quite honest, but there was no social media and, and having this platform of being on TV, that gave me you know, that certain, gave me certain challenges at that really young age. One, I had to deal with the fact that I was the kid on the telly and that brings with it, it's, you know, it's difficult in secondary school, you know, suddenly you're on a platform, who do you think you are? You know, you think you're brilliant and all of the things that come when you go to a normal working class school in Newcastle. Um, or anywhere, let's be honest. And the other side of it was that I had to learn, um, I suddenly my, my self-esteem and my, my body confidence and how I felt about myself was really challenged because I was on telly. And so one, there was a makeup artist doing my face every day. Two, my face was on telly so I could see it and critique it constantly. And, and obviously it was also on a platform for others to do the same. And so at that really young age, I had to build resilience. How do you work through that? How do you deal with the fact that you've got all of this stuff that perhaps your peers haven't got going on? And I think at every stage in my life, being an actress gave me a huge level of resilience because actors will get more knockbacks in one month than most people have in their entire work in life. And, um, and so that certainly gave me a level of bounce back. Then when I experienced actual real life challenges, so the last let what we say, the last 10 years have brought the most, the biggest challenges in my life, the most um, real life challenges in terms of health and death, uh, the death of my husband in 2017. So for your listeners, my husband died of brain cancer. He was diagnosed in 2014. Prior to that though, prior to the, the, the worst thing that happened, we had a lot of smaller ones as well in terms of health stuff. Both my daughters were um, premature. My, my oldest daughter, I had preeclampsia, so I was rushed in hospital. She was in special care. She was tiny. At three months, she got meningitis. It was like a whole heap of stuff in, in a short space of time. But actually, weirdly, I'm grateful for it. Because if I hadn't had all the stuff first, if I hadn't had all the smaller, painful stuff that I had to get back up from... I wouldn't have been ready for 2017 and my husband dying. I wouldn't have, I mean, not that you're ever ready for that, but I wouldn't have been able to even have seen the possibility that I could walk myself through that. 
And, and so actually, it's, I think it's such an important message for people listening to recognize that when you're in the painful stuff, I know you don't want to think about this right now, but it's teaching you something. It's teaching you something that you're, so that it will teach you that resilience and that strength to get you through to the next bit. And there will be many painful bits in your life that you will have to go through, like it or not, miserable as that is. There'll also be, just to balance this out, there'll also be loads of amazing things in your life, but there will be things you have to get through. So I just think recognizing the painful bits are part of the process. And certainly I feel like that's what I've done. So you would say, if I'm hearing this right, that the resilience that you had to build as a teenager and go through all that shit actually helped you in 2017 when your husband passed away yeah and I never thought about that time when I was that teenager and I was dealing with all of the stuff you know all of the normal teenage stuff of having people want to have fights for me and you know all of the minging stuff it's horrible it's really (laughs) rubbish being a teenager I mean I've got two daughters now as you know my oldest is nearly 10 and full of hormones and it terrifies me that she's about to go through that I mean it's awful I mean I'm gonna have to build my resilience up now to deal with that for sure but it's um it's such a challenging time and I didn't when I was sat in that space of being a 15 year old dorky me like gappy teeth and frizzy hair and skinny little dorky body just like all like awkward about myself and unsure of like how I was supposed to be in this world I didn't think do you know what this painful stuff's gonna serve me because my (laughs) husband's gonna die in 2000 I mean it's not like we think like that but I think it's really important to it's certainly important to teach our children that everything that they will go through will will be something beneficial. I mean, my daughters obviously have gone through the worst thing possible in, in their world that their dad has died at such a young age. And as parents, we want to protect our children massively. But the one thing that I have really learned from people that I've spoken to whose parents died when they were young is that these people are, tend to be empathetic and understanding and warm and strong and brave. And I say to my daughters all the time, like you've, I mean, we're just, you know, we're going through this pandemic. I said that like, that was like really like children, just going for the little dabble of this pandemic. You know, <laughs> We're going through this pandemic this year. Um, and I said to my daughters when this first kicked off in, back in March um, in the UK, and I said like, you know, guys, we can do this. We can do a pandemic. Cause this ain't the worst thing that's happened in our world. So you know what, all your friends at school are going to be, this is going to be really challenging for a lot of them right now, because they've never ever had their worlds rocked in this way. You guys will breeze this, you'll walk through it because this isn't the worst that's happened. And so I think even when our children are younger, it's, it's important to teach them that all the little things, even if it's arguments with their friends at school, these, these are important lessons and you know, you're not, you can't avoid them. You can't, you can't avoid going through pain, so get over it because it's going to happen. But you decide, and you can decide this at every stage, you decide how it's going to go. I love that. So I, I can really relate, not in the same context, but um, when my mother-in-law passed away a couple of years ago, um, my daughter, who's now 10, so was eight at the time, was absolute BFFs with her. Um, and now when I look at how resilient she is over such... I say trivial and it's not that other children don't see that as a challenge but I just think geez like that has helped shape her into a kick-ass human being although it's tough and it still is and grief is an ongoing thing um again with the pandemic I she handled it in her stride um and 
was actually like just living the dream at home and I thought yeah because you've experienced such real pain at a young age that actually that does help you in some ways as crazy as that sounds it does it's the one it's the biggest lesson that people can learn is bounce back is learning to bounce back and I really do feel as an actor I had an understanding of what I wanted in my life my main focus was my only focus really was I want to be a successful actress and I was so driven and had such good understanding of what my values were that when stuff didn't work out when I didn't get that part and I was fairly successful as an actor I was a work and I was doing good stuff that I you know I was a work and actress I was succeeding but there were many many disappointments in between that but even when those happened because I knew exactly where I wanted to be I would just get up and go, okay, so it's not to not feel, by the way, it's not to not have you cry and have your frustration, have all of the pain around that and go, this is hard. It's not to have, it's not to avoid it, but it's about to go, okay, now I've had that. What do I do next? And I say this to my kids and some people might think it's brutal, but there'll be times and there has been times, certainly in the depths of, of the real early stages of the grieving process when we'd have hours of crying and there'd be hours of frustration or anger or, you know, a grief process around their dad dying. And there would be times when part of my, um, you know, the part of the way that I dealt with them, obviously there was lots of cuddles and all of the normal stuff, but then there would be a time when I'd go, okay, guys, dad's dead. What next? What do we do? What do we do next? We've got to get up. We can't stay here all day crying. So what are we going to do? That's going to walk us towards the next good thing. And that's all you've got to do. So whether it's you're going, um, you know, I want to be an actor, so I've got to keep getting up. Or I've got to get, I've got to get that job. Or I really want to find a great partner and a great relationship. If you know what your end goal is, you've got to get a bit loosey goosey about how you're going to get there on the route. You know, you've got to, you've got to be able to go. Okay, so that version didn't quite work out as planned. So what's next? It's a really good book by Cheryl Sandberg called plan B, option B, not plan B, option B, plan B is um, an abortion clinic, I think in America, that's not the same thing at all, <laughs> different thing, um, is a plan B, option B, uh, really good book, and not just, it. she is uh, a, a widow, and she, um, so she lost her husband, uh, really tragically, I think it was like, a, I forget now what it was like, on a heart attack on a treadmill or something, it was really sudden, so it's really sad, um, story as well but also it's not just about grief of that it could be the grief of losing your job that you thought was going to work out having health problems which mean you can't do the things that you want to be in a sportsman and, and getting injured or you know what's your option b and i think we all have to be aware that things might not pan out in fact i was talking to my oldest daughter she's um quite overwhelmed by um, Christmas stuff that we have coming up when we're, when we're recording this and she's quite um, quite overwhelmed and I said to her right write down your plan of how you would love it to go and then write down the what ifs what if this doesn't happen what if somebody gets the coronavirus what if we can't do that what if the turkey gets burned whatever but I think being aware of that allows you to go okay so I've still got to keep walking towards the goal I just keep walking towards the goal and sometimes I'm going to fall down. I'm going to have to get back up and I'm going to feel that I'm, that's not going to be easy. It's not about, you know, stiff upper lip. Let's just crack on with it. We, we are human beings and we should absolutely honor our feelings and cry and be frustrated and think it's fucking bullshit that my husband died. It's not fucking fair. And I say that to my daughters as well. You know, I mean, I allow them to say those exact words. It's not like I don't say that because it is fucking unfair and they can be that angry about it. Okay. But now what next? 
What do we do next? Because we can't sit in that space forever. And I just think it's such an, it's it's literally the most important tool that people are going to be able to, you know, once you get up, get on top of resilience, you can know in your mind, you can do whatever you need to. And my mantra throughout everything, certainly since my husband was diagnosed with brain cancer, both mine and his mantra was whatever it takes, whatever it takes you know, whatever that means, whatever that looks like, we get back up, we'll cry, we'll start again, we'll be frustrated, but we'll keep going. And I think if people can have that in their mind, that whatever it takes, or one of my other favorite um, business coaches, Marie Folio says, everything is figure outable. I just love that one. I have it on my phone. Every just my, on my front of my screen of my phone is everything is figure outable. You can work it out. I love that. It's just coming at it and finding a solution. Um, so one of my things is how, um, and you touched on it there, it's about honoring emotions. And actually, we never stay in the same emotion. It might feel like it. It might feel like we were always in a shitty place for a long period of time. But that's not the reality of it. We're maybe just never aware of the little glimmers of happiness that we have. Um, yeah. Bit of a strange question. But in the weeks leading up to Ross passing away, was the times that you experienced happiness? Yeah. Yeah, there was. And so Ross was in a hospice um, for nearly a month. And the during that time, I really, really practiced what I preach. I really practiced the self-development. I was more grateful than I had ever been. I dug deep with that because I knew that my focus couldn't be on literally watching my husband starve to death, which is what happens in the end. And as grim as that is, that's the reality of it. Your their body has given up, but their, but well, sorry, their mind and, and parts of their body have given up. But then there's the survival resilient side of our human body that is going, I've got to survive. So it keeps going in. And that's pretty grim in reality. Um, and Lori was, you know, peaceful and, and they did all their, the doctors did all their work. But during that time, being grateful and allowing that to be my focus was really important. And also laughter was important. So we were really in the hospice surrounded by the closest ones. So Ross's brother and his sister and his mom and his dad and um, his mom's partner at the time, we were all together in that hospice and we I was there every day I just lived there for a month they were very kind to let me do that I don't think that's really the norm but I just wouldn't leave so um I was there and um they during that time we did laugh and, and weirdly we laughed on his deathbed like and it sounds it sounds weird when you haven't experienced it but that gallows humor is what gets you through you know, we really did laugh about stuff, stupid stuff, but you need that light relief. You need to find humor. And also knowing who Ross was as a person, he was the most direct person you're ever going to meet. He was on the autistic spectrum. We had Asperger's. And so he, um, he would have laughed and would have, he would have actually liked the process, which is so odd. Like he was very science driven. And so when, um, when he was dying, there was part of my, you know, brain that knew us as a couple was thinking, he'd love this like he's so weird to say that but I was like he'd be really interested in how this was happening because that was how his brain worked and so you find happiness and laughter and joy in the darkest of times and actually that's what you said there about you not always feeling that dark stuff we don't and I think when people are stuck in it and people are in spaces of depression or long-term sadness or frustration we can tell ourselves a story that everything, everything is bad. And actually, before my husband was diagnosed with brain cancer, he went through depression. And I say went through because I always talk about anything like that as not being a stuck position because it's not. 
It's not a stug. And anyone that's listening, this isn't minimizing your pain. I promise you that now. It's saying, I don't want you to stay in that pain. And so when people say, I have depression, it's a very stuck position. When we say, I walk, I'm going through depression, that means there's an out on the other side and there will be. And so when he was really in the bout of it, and obviously there was actually a physiological reason because the tumor was pushing on parts of his frontal lobe and parts of his brain that was actually creating the depression. When he had a lot of the tumor removed, he felt great. Like it was very, it was literally that. Um, but when he was really in the depths of it, I would say to him every day, tell me what's in your head. Like, tell me the, the worst thoughts. Tell me the, the, the suicidal thoughts. And, and he did uh, the, the darkest thoughts because they're better out in the open because when they're said out loud, they're less potent in, in that way because people know when they're said and sometimes you shock yourself. But I would also say, tell me something good because there was something good today. There was something. And then sometimes that would be, I had a good cup of tea and that would be all he could muster but it was something. And so I would say that to your listeners now, that is something that I, you can argue with me till you're blue in the face. There is always something good. There is always something to feel grateful for. And you, you've got to literally hang on to that. When you're in those tough times, when I was watching Ross die, I was like gripping on to any moment of joy, any moment of gratitude, any way to not focus on the pain of watching my best mate die in front of me. That I don't need to be in that every moment, that pain will be there. And so it's reminding ourselves that there is always joy. It's literally science next to a negative is a positive. There's no, in fact, there's a brilliant YouTube video. I must dig it out for you and send it to you and you can put it on your social media. But I think it's a Stephen Hawkins video and it's about, it's somebody digging a hole and it's shown that when you dig a hole, you actually create when you're digging a mound, a little hill next to it. And it's a really good visual for reminding ourselves of the impact, the positive, negative, they just have to sit side by side. And, and so when you're in it, I know you don't want to hear some Geordie bird telling you to feel grateful. I know you don't, <laughs> I don't care. So I'm going to do it anyway. And at some point you'll hear it and then it will land, but there is always something good. When I was in the hospice, I was grateful for the doctors, the nurses. I was grateful for our time together. I was grateful he was in a hospice, that he was safe, that he was he was comfortable, that he wasn't in pain. I was grateful for my kids, for the support of the, the country because it was very much in the national press and which was weird. Um, but that, you know, I was grateful for that support and, and hanging my you know, my, my stuff on that was, was what pulled me through. Wow. Um, so I actually love gratitude in terms of a daily practice. Um, and that's incredible hearing how you used it going through that tough time. There must've been a time surely when you thought, what is the next step? How do I take the next step? Um, yeah. and what does that look like? Of course, there was all of that. And there was times when I was literally terrified, like terrified of, I, you know, it, when you're, and I guess it's probably particularly like this, if it's somebody that's not timely. So when it's somebody younger, and they're not supposed to die in the in the in the rules of life, old people die, right? So when it's somebody that's younger, and, and Ross was 32, um, it just doesn't seem the right time it's not you know it's not how we, we would like it to be but I think so during that I found the kind of balance between 
knowing it was time for him to die, knowing that he wasn't actually there anymore at that point and that those later stages, Ross had gone with it being brain cancer. It's not the same as somebody, you lose them before you lose them because their brain has gone because his head was full of tumors, which affected his personality. Your brain is you. So, you know, the body for me, I don't attach something to somebody's physical body. It's not I'm not religious in any way. I am very science-based, but I also, you know, energy is science and somebody's energy is not, is not what was left then. So I'd actually, Ross had died before he died for me. And that was, but that's a weird thing because then there's the human, real human side of you going, I, the one side going, it's time for you to let go. Like as in him to let go and to die peacefully and, and all of that. And then the other side, the human, the wife, his friend, um, going just please don't go like I, I don't want you to go yet I'm not ready and and there was moments in the hospice when I I felt that so strongly and there was moments where I was like how do how do I get through this how do I how do I navigate having to go and to tell my children I mean you know tell my children that their dad has died how do I do this and how do I do this in a public forum where eyes are on me and I think I used, because I, I vlogged from the hospice, which I know is weird for a lot of people. And some people will absolutely have went, that's an overshare and all of that, which I couldn't give a fuck about. But um, the reason I say that is because it's what helped me get through. I, growing up on television, being on TV was my safe space. Whatever you know, psychiatrists and psychology would say about that, being in front of a camera was my space. I went to school, I would get grief at school for being the girl on the telly. And then I would get to go and be creative and introvert and do all of my character stuff and, and be doing the thing that I loved in front of a camera. So as an adult, being in front of a camera is my safe space. And actually what it did for me to talk about the stuff that was going on, one, it was a really good way to update anybody that wanted to know. And I didn't have to say it to anybody because I just put it out there and it was done. Two, it got me out of my own head during those moments so that I could kind of make sense of it because I was saying the words Three, I knew it would be something for my daughters to at some point want to look at. And four, there was also the, the coach in me and the person that wants to help people to be happy and to find their happiness and, and to find and to live a good life. And there was part of me going, if I'm going through this, knowing that I'm one of the most resilient people that I know and and know all of the self-development of if I'm going through this right now then there's somebody else who doesn't have the tools and they need to watch me go through it and they need to understand what I'm doing and I would take myself out into the grounds of the hospice which was a very beautiful place might and hospice it is in Warwick and I would go out into the grounds and I would meditate so I do a lot of meditation and my meditations were on letting go of what was happening and, and detaching because in that moment you don't need to be in it like I think people think I've got to feel all the feels I've got to go through all of it but it's not the reality sometimes you just detaching for that time is is helpful for you and, and so I would I was focusing on letting go because I also appreciated that Ross had died even before he died it wasn't Ross that was lying there that was his body and not it wasn't the energy of a, a human that I knew and so it was just really digging deep I would meditate I would um I would focus on gratitude and I would try to zone in so I think we can feel overwhelmed if I'd have thought right okay what do I what's my five-year plan right here how am I going to navigate the fact that I have to move house. I have to give my car up. I had a, we had a disability vehicle. So it was like literally within the space of Ross dying, 
I had bought, me and Ross had bought a house. So I was moving house. The kids were moving schools. I had to get a new car. I was also, I'm a business owner. So I run my own business. I don't make money if I don't show up. And so there's also that. There's also the fact that I had to navigate all of the paperwork that comes with a death, which is not fun. I guarantee you it is not fun. And then also deal with the emotions myself, everybody around me and everything else. And I knew that if I looked at that big picture, mm-hmm. I'd just give up. I'd just go back to sleep. So I just, I, I stepped away from the pressure on myself and I zoned right in and I thought, okay, so what can I do right now? And for me, that came in tiny moments. And it sounds strange again to other people, but again, I don't care. And this is really the don't care and don't give a fuck is important in these stages of grief. But I, my control was I need to get ready and put my makeup on and do my hair. And I know to some people that's bizarre, like, why did you care? But that was something I could control and I could control that. And I could it meant that when I looked in the mirror, I didn't have to see pain all over my face and I didn't have to see a mess. I could see somebody who looked like they could deal with the shit that they were going to deal with. And that was actually at that moment, something I could do. And I would just take it one step at a time. And anybody that I speak to now who's in the the thick of it, I say, one, do it in your own way. I knew that everybody would want me to be the grieving widow. Everyone would expect that because that's what we see in Disney. That's what we see on the telly, the grieving widow, the tears, the no makeup, the sadness. And I just thought at one, you know, there was one point when I felt like maybe I need to do that, do I? And I was like second guessing myself. And I just thought, you know what? I need, I've not lived my life ever in the way that people expected me to or what is considered to be the normal route. Why am I going to do grief the same as I should be doing it apparently? And I just realized that I had to let myself off the hook and just do it in whatever way felt good. And I said from the very beginning, if any stage I want to have an emotional breakdown and just go, just not get out of bed, I'm perfectly, uh, I should, I should have that breakdown. And I'm, I'm, that's my prerogative, but actually I think in taking the pressure off myself and just letting myself be and knowing that the grief would come in waves, I think that in itself was, was a helpful tool. Do you think that, so for me, I know it's a very different situation, but when you talk about pressure there, I think one of the biggest things that leads people to not feeling good is the pressure and expectations that they put on self in any situation. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I think that's the biggest thing. The shoulda, woulda, couldas, the way I should look, the way I should do things, the with the timeline that I should be doing this in, it's the same for every single thing in our lives. And we're constantly doing this. And interestingly, I actually went to see a, a counsellor about a year after Ross died. And if I'm honest, it was bearing in mind what I do. And I, you know, I do the work that I know a counselor would do with me and I do all of that stuff. And it's very hard. I'm a terrible person to, to work with because, because <laughs> I know it, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't make any difference. As you know, you, you need to work. But anyway, I decided I had it on my insurance and everyone was kind of, oh, you know, everyone was getting counseling around me. And I thought, oh, do you know what? I'll go and do some sessions. Maybe I'm missing something. And I, I went and I, so, I sort of feel like I did it because I felt like everybody was going and people were saying to people around me, but is she really okay? Is she, but is she though? But is she okay? In herself, is she okay? <laughs> and I started to go, am I okay? Cause I feel okay. I felt like I was dealing with it appropriately. I was crying when I needed to cry and have continued to, I, I cry when I need to cry. I deal with stuff when I, I laugh when I sh- can laugh and I don't avoid it from the very beginning. I said, Ross died. I never, I needed to say that because Ross was with me all the time. I couldn't just 
you know, he wasn't lost. I, I can't stand people say when, when I lost him. I mean, I sometimes say it because it's vernacular that we hear, but it's just a weird thing. He's not lost, he's dead. Like I needed to say that because I didn't make sense in my head that he was dead. Like that doesn't make sense. It's, it's still, even now, there'll be days when I think, did that happen? Has he actually died? Like, and so I felt like I was dealing with it appropriately. And then I got, to, so I did these sessions. I did some six sessions with a, a counselor, poor thing bless her um and she just I just felt like I was almost like laughing at myself and she just went you know what Holly you don't need to be here you don't need to be here you you've done the you you're absolutely fine you're dealing with everything appropriately and the only thing you need to do is not listen to anybody else and and that was it like get out of other people's expectations just because other people wouldn't deal with it in that way that's fine. That's, they can deal with it in their way. And I think that's the biggest lesson for anything in life, whether it's the pressure we put on ourselves to hit certain timelines, we should have kids by this age. I should have a partner. I should have got myself in. I should be successful. I should be qualified. Like it's just bullshit. It's just bullshit that we put pressure on ourselves like that. Do you know what? You can be, and your listeners can be anything that they fucking want to be at any stage in their life. Just go and have a go at it. All right. I know there's going to be somebody that's going to go, well, I can't be a footballer at 72. All right. There's certain physical things. Don't be annoying. Don't come for me. <laughs> but on the uh, for the majority of things, the pressure we put on ourselves is purely bullshit stories that we tell ourselves that uh, allow us not to have to do anything. You can. You can be anything you want. You can stop right now and go, this is not the course I want to be on. I want to get off. I want to stop and I want to change it and yes there will be judgment from other people absolutely so what so what on your deathbed are you going to look back and go I didn't do anything because Sue from work was going to judge I mean you're not are you really you're not going to give it a shit I mean I'd hope not you're going to go I didn't do anything because I was too worried about Sue from school or on the school run I just just know just stop just just let yourself be and whatever whether that's grief or anything else just let yourself be and let yourself walk through it really powerful so I love that analogy of actually going through something um because I think people do identify with certain things and own it mm -hmm. and then do um and, and you're right, I hate the word stuck, but that's how they actually feel, um, mm. stuck in that position. Um, was there a time when you ever felt like you would never move on from this situation? No. If I'm being honest, no. I think hope is a very powerful thing. And I also am a person who finds solutions, which is why I'll, I'll rarely say problem. I'll always say challenge because I think there's always a way to get through something and there's always something good coming. Even if you've been, you know, if I list, if I write down on paper, the difficult stuff that I've had over the last 10 years, I know I touched on some of the stuff that, you know, but if I were to list it, you could go, shit, like, oh, that's, that's really tough, right? And on paper, you'd be right. But you know what? At every point, I went, okay, what's the good I can bring out of this? And even if it was things like, so Brooke got meningitis. So once Brooke was better, I went, okay, so this is an experience I've gone through. And strangely enough, I had meningitis as a child as well. So my poor parents, I was born premature. 
I was tiny little three pound baby and my mom had eclampsia and then I got meningitis at about seven. So my mom and dad was actually worse for them in some ways because they just watched Brooke be born like three months previously at a really difficult birth and all of this fear around that, then meningitis, all this tough stuff. Um, so for them, bless them, it was, it was really challenging. But then um, what, as soon as that was all died down, I thought, right, okay, so I've gone through all of this stuff. I've had managers, what can I do to give back or for it to be this, to be a positive out of this negative? So I then worked, started working with Meningitis UK. I think it might be a different name now, but anyway, it was that at the time. I worked with a charity. I allowed them to use my platform to make sure that other people knew early on what the symptoms of meningitis were. I went on to, um, I think it was this morning or something and we talked on there about it. And I used that negative and made it positive. And I think having always been able to do that, it, it is a skill that I learned. It's not a skill I was born with. This is something I had to learn. So anyone that's like, well, that's just you. That's just you. It's, it's not, it's, this wasn't always easy finding it. It's almost like, yeah, I feel like sometimes you get a negative and you're like, you've got to claw back to come on is a bloody break you know my husband died in 2017 2018 my sister's partner got leukemia for the second time we had to go through all of that like that's what that's not fair like that's not fair but it's happening so then you go okay you take a breath you take a moment and then you look for the next thing but I don't think I've I'm an optimistic person in that a realistic a realistic optimist so I will look the tiger in the eye, even if it makes me cry, even if I'm like, what, like, as if, really, they've got that happening now, and you know, there'll be one of those, there'll be one of those any minute, in fact, recently, this, um, a couple of weeks back, I, um, and it wasn't a big thing at all, but it really got me into that mindset of this does not, this never ends, I had a, a mole on my arm that was a bit suspect, and obviously being, it's less scary if it was just me. It's more scary if it's anything because of the kids and the impact emotionally that will have on them. They didn't know anything about it, but I had to send off stuff and I had to go and do it. And I've got to have a, I've still got to have a biopsy on it, but it, they've basically said it's not skin cancer. Um, but that feeling, I, I, as I was driving into the hospital, bearing in mind the hospital is where Ross went as well. That's all kinds of emotional impact that that brings up. And I was going in and I was pep talking myself. So for anybody that doesn't think coaches pep talk themselves, I guarantee you pep talk yourself all day, every day, Helen. Yeah. And, and I'm the same. Like I talk out loud to myself, okay, so if this is going to be skin cancer, right? Well, there's nothing you can do about it. This is what I was saying to myself on the way there. If there's skin cancer, there's nothing you can do about it, right? It's skin cancer. So we'll deal with it. You know, the statistics are pretty good. You'll deal with it. If you have to have your arm chopped off, fine. What if your arm chopped off? Whatever. You live without an arm. This is the level of like, I was playing out to myself, obviously. Yeah. You could be, it'd be, it'd be cool to have one arm. You know, you could probably help people that have got one arm. You know, this is where my brain's gone because I'm trying to find solutions. But I think that that is something that we learn. I don't, it's not something we're born. I mean, we kind of are born with it because essentially human beings job our body's job our brain's job is to survive so we are actually born resilient um but we just we forget that we can because it's too easy not to and we we always assume by looking at social media that everybody else isn't doing all of that stuff and isn't crying isn't feeling things so we just put a lot of pressure on ourselves but i just think that i I constantly think even if the worst happens, there will be some solution and there'll also be some out of the other side. So again, when you said about the, the stuck feeling and all of that, I think it's reminding yourself it isn't forever. 
even when you're in it, even when you've been given a diagnosis, it doesn't have to be forever, you know, and there's also, even if it's a, a more serious diagnosis of a mental illness, it's not every second of every day, it's not, and you have to recognize when you're in those down moments where you're not going through an episode or you're not going through the painful bit there there's always a moment when it's not and I know again it, it's never to minimize and, and I'm always very careful how I word this but you know when when we have diagnoses yes there's a benefit in them because what it does is lets those around us know that where we're at is at a serious level and that's really helpful and beneficial and important and it lets us also know that it's not a fault. We're going through something. But I do get worried that people then get fixated on that diagnosis. And what it doesn't allow them space to do is find solutions. Because yeah. what it does is go, okay, well, that's who I am. This is me now. And that's not true. And I will dispute that. It's not true. There are ways that you can at least, at the very least, work through things. There are tools that you can find. And it's why we do what we do, because there are very, very many scientifically proven or spiritual, if you are into that as well, tools that will help you walk through those things. And so, yeah, I just, um, it's a very contentious thing for people that happiness is a is a thing we do and that it's a, an actionable thing. And that's, you know, things like stress and depression are things that aren't necessarily forever. They're just things that we get, they are episodes and points in our lives when things are worse. But I think it's an important to, uh, subject to talk about. Yeah, and I think that's it is nothing lasts forever. Everything is temporary. Equally, the good is temporary. So how do you savor them good moments? And actually, when you're in them, just be aware that, hey, this isn't going to last forever either. So what when um, Ross and I used to talk about this a lot, and I'd still have this image in my head, so we used to talk about, and I'm not sure if it was off a quiz. I think it was off like, who? what show is it where they say bank something? Is it Millionaire? I don't know. But anyway, I think one of them was someone on though. But we used to say a lot, when you're in a moment of joy, bank that moment. Lit, and I, and I, would, I would do this in a, whether it's taking a photo, I would take a visual memory. And it's very interesting because the moments I did that were always the most banal, nothing moments. They were just tiny moments. And especially when you're given a diagnosis of, you know, uh, brain cancer or something like that, when you know there may not be, a good scenario that it end and we knew that from Ross Ross had grade four brain cancer from the beginning and although initially they ticked the box to cure the reality was that it you know it would have he would say this will get me eventually like I'm doing my best I'm going to walk through it and everything and I'm going to do whatever they tell me to do but I won't this would this will be the thing that kills me and, and you know he was very real um but we would bank moments and so in those moments of when I, what I was going to say is when I said back, I, in my head, I thought I'm going to bank this banal moment of nothingness of him painting the walls in the house with broken texts. That's a moment that I knew I might not ever, ever see again. And I know it, it's not, you know, it's not the big moments, it's not the weddings and the births and all the big celebrations or, or whatever, but it's those moments, the moments when Ross and I would watch some crappy tv and, and have a cup of tea together and be sat there there'd be moments when I just think I'm banking this moment and when I said it to myself it's really interesting that those memories are really clear in my head because I said I'm going to bank them and it allowed me to be in that moment and it I guess it's a practice of mindfulness of really being in it and it's actually the benefit of such a heinous diagnosis that when you're living on what feels like borrowed time with the person you live in a really heightened space of awareness 
when we used to go into the radiotherapy department, the cancer wards, it's one of the most positive places you're ever going to be because people have dropped giving a shit. They, they know they ain't, some of those people in that wards don't have time. They know they're, they're on borrowed time. They know that the doctors might not be able to work it out. And so they give a shit less about other people's opinions and they live a life they love. Ross never gave a shit anyway. So that didn't make any difference, but he never lived a life of somebody with cancer. He would say, they tell me I've got brain cancer. I can't fucking feel it. Let them do their thing and I'll do mine. And he never talked about, he just, not, not in a way like I'm not going to talk about. It. He just was like, all right, we'll just do whatever we've got to do. And then we'll get on with the other stuff that we want to do. And that's how we lived. And so I think just, it's very, very important to be in those moments when you're in those moments of joy, recognize you're in a moment of joy in the same way, rather than what, what is called joy for boarding, which is like, where, sorry, is it joy for or some happiness for boarding? It's almost like you're in that moment of joy and you spoil it, you sabotage it by thinking, well, this is not going to last forever this is going to be jinxed now or whatever shite that we tell ourselves. Like it's, it's recognizing that no, you just enjoy in those moments when you're feeling content and there's nothing going on. Don't go, Oh, this is, this is the calm before the storm. This is the kind of shit we tell ourselves. And then we don't enjoy the moments when we're in them. So when you're with your person today, notice them be with them because they won't be around forever sadly they won't and we never know and it's not a it's not a grim thing to say I mean Ross used to say which is grim he would often say I'm due a death what a horrible thing I mean why would you say that he'd say oh I'm due a death no one's died in a while and like that's a grim thing to say um, but don't do that but the point being that as you said nothing lasts forever N not relationships not the the things that we enjoy doing none of that not even the lovely chocolate bar that you love it doesn't last forever sadly and it's important that we have those highs and lows otherwise we wouldn't really appreciate that joy yeah I totally agree Okay, I hold my hands up. I promised you a podcast that would give you that Friday feeling that was all around focusing on feeling good. And you might be a little bit confused because that was a little bit deep, wasn't it? And I'm really grateful for Holly for sharing those insights. And I think that actually, if you can take something to help you feel good from this, it's around resilience and how actually you are resilient you have resilience within you it's a natural part of our human kit that we've got and actually it's what helps us go through the tough times so if you can learn to trust in your resilience like my slinky when you are knee deep in shit and feel like the world is on your shoulders and your slinky is stretched out to the max trusting and knowing that your resilience is in there it's built within and just let it do its job and just knowing that and trusting that our body and the kit that we've got the tools within us are so clever to help us survive and thrive even that sometimes as humans we pile everything on top and overcomplicate stuff and actually mask the real innate kit that we've got. And for me, resilience is one of them tools, one of them tools that you have within you and actually helps you get through the tough shit. So when you feel like your slinky is stretched out, take from this that you will bounce back. So there we have it, the last episode of 2020. 
keep your eyes peeled for some more exciting guests and some real feel-good topics coming in 2021. Speak to you guys soon.